You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you like All Things Video, I'm sure you'll enjoy my new friend Sheila Cagill's podcast, Communicate Influence. The Communicate Influence podcast explores the obvious and less obvious issues and trends in PR, communications, and marketing. It's essential listening for anyone at the forefront of these industries. Listen at communicateinfluence.com or with your favorite podcast listening app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Neil Schaefer, CEO of PDCA Social. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, James. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. And I, I thought we'd start off by talking a little bit about your background, particularly because you haven't always worked in the marketing space and you came at it from a bit of an interesting angle. You majored in Asian studies at Amherst University. You're fluent in Japanese and Mandarin. Why that early career and what did you do after graduation? Sure. Well, I, uh, you know, I grew up in an area where most of my friends were Asian American and I was going to birthday parties in high school where I was the only I was the only one who was speaking English. Let's put it this way, because everybody else was speaking a foreign language. So I decided when I went to Amherst College that I was going to study a foreign language and that ended up being an Asian language, Chinese. And, you know, the long story short is I decided to start my career in Japan. I did my junior abroad in Beijing and I figured, you know, I can start my career in the U.S., but if I'm overseas, every day is going to be a learning experience. And I ended up being in Japan for 15 years, mainly in B2B sales. But I was, you know, country manager, regional VP of sales for startups. And I was basically, you know, at the time in charge of a lot of different things, had to wear a lot of different hats. So I had to do marketing, I had to do HR, had to do customer service and and hire people uh, to manage those operations that we built out locally. And really that holistic business experience gave me this unique perspective that I think still helps me today in digital and, and social media. So, you know, fast forward, I'm back, got married in Japan, had a baby girl, came back to Southern California where I was born. And, you know, lo and behold, after a few years, I'm in the job market for the first time. And, and my network was all in Asia, not locally. So I started with LinkedIn as a great place to build a network. And uh, it was 2008, got my job. And the day I got the offer, I decided to start a blog just to share what I had learned. And I, I really believed that it's all about networking and your network is your most important asset. And I just want to help people. And, and by blogging and helping people through the blog, you know, for me, it was it was going to help me build a better and bigger community. So that, that's how I started, right? It was never for business, but that turned into a job that uh, didn't last long because of the Lehman Brothers crisis back then. And obviously we're at a new crisis today. And I, you know, my wife was like, Neil, if you can't find stuff, just, you know, why don't you write a book? And I never thought about doing that, but I converted my blog uh, into a book and started to get asked to speak locally. I think the first time I spoke was July of 2009 at a digital media summit in UCLA. You know, I released the book and all of a sudden I got opportunities to speak. And then in January 2010, I got opportunities from four different companies to help them with consulting. So, you know, I don't have an agency background, but I have a, you know, solution selling background. And I was more into the strategy and consulting side of things. And that, that's where I launched in 2010 and really haven't looked back. Amazing. Well, sounds like some good advice from your wife. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> now she said ebook. And I mean, yeah, ebooks still sell. But uh, but yeah, you know, I realized after, you know, I, I, I had this job and lost it. You know, from there, I realized I wanted to create something that no one could take from me. And that was my personal brand. And that's where I got really more heavily into just sharing more information. And and when I looked at it, like 25% of my book, I'd already blogged. So I was, you know, one quarter of the way there. 
Had you always considered yourself entrepreneurial or was this kind of your first endeavor to set out and do something for yourself? Yeah, I was always sort of the entrepreneur inside of the company, always trying to do, you know, new things, innovative things, and really, uh, you know, very business minded. So, you know, I finally had that opportunity when I was put in charge of our China sales for the semiconductor company. So I launched our China sales, right? I built up a staff of like 15, you know, we're generating millions of dollars in revenue and I built it from scratch and, and nobody helped me. I had to do it all by myself and very, very few internal resources. So that's, that's like being an entrepreneur within a company where the risk is on the company. So there's no investment on your part. You have time and energy, but that was a role that I really thrived at. So when I left that company, went to an American startup and did the same thing for them in Western Japan. And then a Canadian startup reached out to me and, you know, launched their Asia sales. And it generated from 0% of global sales to 30% in two years. So I always had that entrepreneurial instinct, maybe because I grew up a punk rocker here in Southern California, you know, anti-authoritarian. <laughs> and, and they say that those types actually do, do well as entrepreneurs. But, uh, but yeah, I, I always thought of, of myself in that way. And I even had one guy, he worked for a big trading company when I was in the semiconductor company. And I remember a lunch we had together in Shanghai and he goes, Neil, are you like, are you like on the board of directors? Are you, are you like a shareholder that's telling this company what to do from an investor perspective? Because whenever I did my job, James, I was thinking, what would the CEO think of what I'm doing? Or what would the shareholders think of what I'm doing? So it was very much, you know, entrepreneurial, profit-driven, business-driven, revenue-driven, value-driven, uh, mission-driven, strategic. And I've always had that mindset. So yes. And, you know, my father was an entrepreneur. He was an elementary school teacher turned entrepreneur. Uh, a few of my brothers have launched companies. So it's probably in the family DNA as well. <laughs> Very good. It's in your blood. Yeah. So you make the shift from being an entrepreneur within these larger organizations throughout Asia to, you know, being a first-time founder. What was the hardest part, you know, during that early period, 2009, 2010? I think at the beginning, you know, there was plenty of business opportunities in all honesty, now that I look back at it, and I was converting some of those. But at the beginning, it's just trying to create a scalable product or service. Uh, my challenge, and, and, you know, to this day, consulting really does not scale. So I've always been challenged to try to create products. And I tried to create my own sort of consulting products within that consulting. Uh, you're not buying my time, you're buying a product, right? Which I estimate how many hours it's going to take, but it's sold at a much higher value. So that's always the challenge, right? It's just that scaling and really putting together the rails are off. You're free to put together any sort of packaging you want. It's sort of like if you're an agency and a brand reaches out to you, you can tell them whatever you want in terms of monthly retainers and, and, and paint whatever picture you want. Whether you get the business or not is another story. But but that I think was, uh, it, you know, I'm an extremely creative individual, so I, I really thrived on it. But it was challenging, right, to figure out the way to put together the packages to not only drive revenue, but to scale operations. So, you know, that's kind of the business side of it, but then you're also working closely in a rapidly evolving industry. I'm curious, you know, what are some of the biggest changes you've observed in social media marketing over the last decade? Wow. Yeah, we are in our second decade and it's matured, right? Because at the beginning, you know, I, I had big companies, I had some Fortune 50s reach out to me just to create a social media marketing strategy. And those days now are gone. I think, you know, the, the market is mature enough where the big companies are probably working with big consulting companies or with big agencies, and they already have those strategies. So, you know, as the market matures, the needs change. So at the beginning, and it's very similar to influencer marketing today for a lot of companies, you know, what's the ROI? How do we prove the ROI? How do we get more budget? And, and I said, look, 10 years ago, you were asking the same things about social media marketing and you're doing them today. 
influencer marketing is no different. It's another iteration of that. You know, where are you going to get the budget from? Well, 10 years ago, you probably drew the budget from traditional media or underperforming digital media, and, and it's no different today. So definitely with, with the maturation of the market, the needs have changed. We, we've seen things evolve from, you know, organic social media doing great to, you mean we have to pay for this now? And, and, and then the emergence of pay to play. And obviously now the emergence of influencer marketing. And, and in between that, we've had the emergence of completely visual platforms. And now you have the emergence of, you know, TikTok, which is a, you, you could call it a purely entertaining platform. Definitely things have gotten incredibly more visual. Influence has become democratized. Media creation has become democratized as has media consumption. So audiences are more fragmented than ever. And it's just harder and harder for brands that are used to having a, a one-to-many approach and reaching everybody. It's just harder and harder to do that today, right? Because of, uh, of all these circumstances. So it's definitely changed and companies have to cover a wider footprint than ever when it comes to social media marketing today, but they're also getting better at measuring, at deriving ROI. Uh, you know, content creation is something interesting because I argue, and, and I just wrote a new book I told you about, James, called The Age of Influence. And I argue that brands just are, are not good at creating lifestyle content. They're not good at creating videos that people want to watch. And, you know, over the past decade, we've had influencers emerge. Big brands could have emerged. Big media companies could have emerged. But it's the influencers that are great content creators that really figured out how to create content, visual content, you know, video stories, photos that tapped into people's emotions, right? And that, that they were able to create a great community from. And this is something that brands have not been able to do, which is why now, you know, almost unheard of when Disneyland launched their Instagram channel, and this is like seven, eight years ago, they said, we're going 100% UGC. And Ritz-Carlton Hotels has done the same on Instagram. So you have these iconic brands now that are just doing UGC and a lot more brands are realizing that power of leveraging UGC and, and for influencers. And, you know, they, I tell people in the book and as I speak, you know, influencers are content creators at the heart of it. So yes, there's a, there's an amplification value without a doubt, but there's also this value of content creation. So we're now seeing this big shift towards UGC. Obviously a lot of that UGC is coming from influencers but that's been the other really, really interesting shift we've seen that, heck, you don't even have to have your own content to do well in the space. And the smart companies are realizing that and they're leveraging that. So I know I talked about a lot and that's sort of the, this incredible transformation we've had over the past decade. No, that's great. I want to unpack a lot of those uh, different elements. You know, let's start with the UGC idea where brands are harnessing the power of their built-in audience, right? If you have a brand like Disneyland, you already have this tribe of very enthusiastic people who have engaged with, whether it's your media properties, this IP that you're creating, these live experiences you create through the parks. And so, you know, you can tap into that and harness this uh, this culture around your brand to promote the, the message, right? And so yep. not only is it cost effective, but oftentimes, as you said, brands aren't necessarily built to be visual storytellers, entertainers, and there are already these people that exist in their orbit that want to help share that story. So it seems like a great way to, to leverage that. Absolutely. The way I put it, James, if you're a Disneyland and you have enough content from your fans to last you 10 years, that's awesome. But 99% of businesses are not in that situation, right? I, I do a lot of business in Japan, right? So uh, when I go back there, they're actually pretty late when it comes to digital and social and, and, and influencer marketing. But I'll talk to you know business owners. I'm like, well, how did your business get to be where it is today? And they all pretty much say the same thing, word of mouth marketing, right? Now, organic social media was the promise of word of mouth marketing in the early days of Facebook, when you got 16, 20% impressions or 10% impressions for, for your content to your fans. And we know now that that is all dead. 
It just does not happen anymore. So here's the thing. We know the number one thing we do online is social media. And it's the best place to incite word of mouth marketing because of the way that these platforms are built. So if people are talking about your brand, great. If they're not, you need to incite it, right? Organically, you're not going to get any traction. You can do advertising, but people tune out ads and it's still an advertisement, right? There's this inherent lack of trust. Some ads do really well, don't get me wrong, but it's also getting more expensive. And this is where influencers come in. These are people that can help you insight word of mouth for, for lack of a better term. And that's an extreme value for a company that may be an unknown out there to have someone talking about you and hoping that that incites that sort of organic growth within their community and sort of lights that, that, that fire or uh, you know, ignites that spark, which can lead to obviously that word of mouth, which, which leads to brand awareness, which leads people down the funnel into actual sales. So I'm curious, you know, you you started your social career through blogging and LinkedIn and, you know, since then have embraced many of these other social platforms that have emerged. You mentioned TikTok, of course, Instagram, Facebook, and many of those tend to skew more B2C, whereas LinkedIn is a B2B platform. And, you know, I think we've observed some significant changes to LinkedIn post Microsoft acquisition. What is your take on the future of the platform and how it can be this environment for B2B influencers? Every social network is looking at every other social network, what they're doing there. We, we know, you know, Instagram has been the most aggressive in terms of stealing. I won't say stealing, but mimicking, <laughs> you know, features from other platforms. And really at the end of the day, Facebook, Instagram being part of Facebook, you know, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, LinkedIn, they're all fighting for advertiser budget, right? So in order to get the advertiser budget, you need to have an advertising product, which normally are ads, but you also need to have people that come back to your platform day in and day out and that spend more time on your platform day in and day out. So, you know, LinkedIn at some point realized, and I think part of it was LinkedIn, but part of it was also just driven by the fact that millennials are now a majority of the workforce. So over the course of a decade, of course, the way people use social media have changed, the way people use LinkedIn have changed. And, you know, we used to separate, well, I only want to keep my personal on Facebook and I keep LinkedIn professional. Those lines have blurred a great deal. And the younger the generation, I think the more those lines have blurred. So Facebook becomes more professional and LinkedIn becomes more casual is really what's happened. So I think that LinkedIn is forgotten about when we talk about influencer marketing, but LinkedIn is obviously for B2B, it is the most powerful social network. And the thing about LinkedIn is, Compared to a Facebook where people post all the time or, you know, even on Instagram, you have a lot of people that are very active. LinkedIn doesn't have that culture of people posting very frequently. Maybe when they got a new job, maybe when there was an announcement about, you know, their, their career, but th that culture was not there. But then again, LinkedIn needs to keep people coming back in the newsfeed. They need content. So in terms of this supply and demand of content, LinkedIn has pretty much always been in need of content over the last several years. So they welcome your content and they give you impressions. And for my clients, our LinkedIn company page impressions as a percentage of fans do way better than Facebook pages. In fact, I have clients where they only have a certain, you know, let's say they have a hundred followers, they'll get impressions in the few hundreds every time they post. So this is because of the supply and demand. The other really, really cool thing about LinkedIn is we talk about social networks needing to generate revenue. Well, Facebook has ads, right? Twitter has ads, Instagram has ads, and, and so on. Well, LinkedIn doesn't have to just rely on ads, right? They have HR solutions. They have Sales Navigator. 
So the advertising revenue for LinkedIn only comprises maybe a quarter to a third of revenue. So they can be a little bit more generous, right? They can be a little bit more generous to small businesses and make sure that their content gets more visibility in the feed or what have you. So I think this may explain, in addition to supply demand, why LinkedIn organically, you know, I'd say LinkedIn and Instagram, and obviously we can add TikTok to that, are places where organically you can still get a lot of impressions for your content. And obviously, where are the business leaders? They are on LinkedIn. I recently did a collaboration with FedEx. They reached out to me as an influencer and uh, they had a, you know, a small business award that they were running a contest for and they wanted to get the word out for it. Well, we're better than LinkedIn to work with, you know, a B2B influencer to do that. And I hope that companies really wake up to the fact that influencer marketing is not just Instagram. And I know that all the tools out there, you know, gear towards Instagram and, and or YouTube. But it's not about having a tool because LinkedIn closes its ecosystem off to a lot of these different tools out there. It's really about, you know, I, I tap into my holistic business experience, right? Who is talking about us? Who's talking about our competitors? Who are the talkers in our industry? You know, we get to that, that 99-1, who are the top 1% creators of 500 million LinkedIn pros? Who is the top 1% that are posting content, that are publishing content that is relevant to my company and how do we engage with them? And, and on LinkedIn, there's an incredible amount of things you can do organically to be seen, to connect with them and what have you. So yeah, it's time for companies to wake up. I mean, if you're B2B and you're fiddling around with Instagram, you might have some success there, but you're going to have a way more success on LinkedIn without a doubt. What makes a successful influencer campaign in your mind uh, in 2020? So every influencer campaign has an ROI, right? Has a, a KPI. And First of all, that's the most important aspect is, you know, what are you trying to measure? Can you measure it? So campaign objectives, you know, from brand awareness all the way down to actual sales generated by a trackable link. There's a lot of different factors there. Obviously having that in place, and I'm assuming that listeners to this podcast are already doing that because there are a lot of businesses that really don't have that solid right now that I'm still educating. Influencer identification is still, you know, next to that ROI piece is going to be the next critical piece. And I think a lot of brands just just work with the wrong influencers for a lot of different reasons. And part of it is you need to have data to be successful. You need to have a track record of working with influencers to understand how they're going to perform, right? Agencies in the space using tools and using their own experience can almost go up to a brand and say, hey, if you work with these 10 influencers in this type of campaign, you're going to get this type of result, right? This is something that brands need to be able to figure out how to do. So it comes down to, you know, developing long-term relationships where you are collaborating with influencers in, in a repeatable way so that you can sort of get this data, but also those long-term relationships. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, James, but before this coronavirus pandemic, there was a trend in brands just sending influencers on trips, right? And it's a great idea because it lets you deepen that relationship, lets you deepen how you educate these influencers. And at the end of the day, it comes down to human emotions. They're going to you know, be grateful and they're going to have a greater chance of converting into advocates, right? Because you did something special and you were able to develop that relationship. So I think it's all about the long term, developing those relationships, converting them into brand advocates. So I tend not to refer to campaigns. I tend to refer to these as influencer marketing programs or influencer brand ambassador programs where it, it is long-term. You may not tap into every influencer for every campaign that you have as part of that program, but you have a pool of people that you're educating, that you're training. I know of brands that are training micro-influencers and how to shoot better photos and create better videos, right? It is a long-term program that you invest in. And I think when you invest in it in that way, 
you get the best long-term results. And this is a lot of what I write about in, in the age of influence. I do believe that the influencer marketing industry is maturing a great deal as well. And those brands that have already been investing a lot are looking at how to get to that next level. Whereas new companies that haven't been investing because they have misconceptions about what influencer marketing is, are looking to go that same route. Yeah, that's clearly where the industry is headed, right? When influencer marketing emerged, people thought of these creators with a large reach on social as just another ad unit, right? It was like, okay, they have built-in distribution. They're an impression just like I can buy a digital banner. And so it's just another way to reach an audience. And I think there's been this, this growth and understanding that influencers are much more than that, right? They're people, they're creatives, they have this production capability. And yes, they have built-in loyal fan base, but it's not the same as a, another distribution method. And so we, we kind of moved away from you know, the marketplace concept and the ideas of one-off campaigns. And, and the really, truly successful brands in the influencer space are moving towards more of those long-term initiatives, those ongoing brand ambassador programs that create this sense of loyalty, shared value, and connection between the influencer and, and the advertiser's message. Absolutely. And this is what I, I talk about and what I write about. And I'm really trying to accelerate everybody's understanding of this because the savvy companies and, and the people in the space like you and me realize this, but 99% of businesses don't, right? What we talk about is ideal. But in reality, you need to hit a KPI. You're tapping into the marketplace because you're late on a program or whatever it is. We're never going to be at 100% efficiency, 100% ideal way of, of doing things. And it takes time to develop those programs, whereas you may have short-term needs. So it, it's not going to be 100% perfect, but I think the more that companies strive towards that, the greater ROI they're going to find over time. A lot of these are topics that you discuss on your podcast, Maximize Your Social Influence. So I'm curious, you know, what, what was the inspiration behind uh, getting into the podcast space? So it's funny. Uh, I launched my podcast a long time ago, like back in 2013. So when I launched it, I, I think it was a little bit early, but I launched it as a marketer, as part of a content marketing initiative. I'm a speaker, so I always have a lot to talk about. And I realized that I can use the podcast as a way to flesh out my ideas for my content based on, you know, my, my experiences and my consulting, what have you. So I started and I took two really, really long breaks. So I, I did it like 2013, 14, took a long break to 2016. And uh, in between that, I came out with my third book called Maximize Your Social. So I rebranded. It used to be called Social Business Unplugged. I rebranded it to Maximize Your Social. And then with my book coming out in March of this year, The Age of Influence, I rebranded it as Maximize Your Social Influence to be better aligned with what I talk about today. So I'd say in the second half of 2019, I began to get a lot more stable with my publishing. And now I, I'm very stable with weekly publishing. And I realized that um, over the last six months, how podcasters are influencers of their own. And I recently moved from, you know, we're going to get technical here, but I recently moved my podcast hosting as part of this from Libsyn to Buzzsprout. And Libsyn's like the gorilla in the market everybody has. My original podcast editor got me set up there, but I can't figure the tool out. It's just extremely complex. So I, <laughs> I used Libsyn, yeah, back in 2015 when I started my show. And uh, yeah, similarly moved off it too as there was this huge spike in uh, podcast companies. I got signed to a, a podcast network for a while uh -huh. and then ended up um, going a little bit more independent recently. 
But uh, yeah, it's certainly been a lot of changes and evolutions in the tools available to podcasters over the years. And, and to be honest with you, it just kept me from innovating. It kept me from podcasting because it was so frustrating. That was part of yeah. you know what I had. So so anyway, I moved over to a tool called Buzzsprout. There's a lot of other ones out there, but Buzzsprout has an amazing community on Facebook. They have a group and. You know, I'd go through and, and Buzzsprout, when you reach like a thousand listeners or 5,000 listeners, you know, or downloads, they, they send out these emails and people post them in the group. And it's amazing. These podcasters just starting out, it depends on the topic, but they're getting, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of downloads per episode. And when I talk to a lot of businesses, it's like when you publish a blog post, are you getting hundreds of views, thousands of views in the first few weeks? And an overwhelming majority of businesses are not, Right. So this, you know, leads to, wow, podcasters ha have an influence. The, the medium has an influence. And just like any other content creator, whether they're on Instagram or, or they're, you know, a YouTuber, it's the same thing, different medium. But we know that podcasting is slowly growing. And, you know, I was in Starbucks the other day. I went to PodFest, my first podcasting conference in Orlando, Florida, just before this coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, the T-shirt was um, asking me about my podcast, right? So I wore it to the local Starbucks, uh, you know, earlier in the month. And uh, the baristas like, hey, tell me about your podcast. And, and I'm, I, I liked it. I said, hey, baristas, there were like four behind the counter. I'm like, how many of you actually listen to podcasts? You know, two raised their hand. And, and these people are like early 20s. So it really has emerged as a major medium. And I'm really dedicated to it. And I see the ROI of it in many, many ways. But at a minimum, like I said, it does help me for my own internal R&D of like fleshing out my thoughts. But it also allows me, I mean, like to talk to someone like James Creech or to interview other people that are influencers. So it's a great sort of influencer marketing tool as well. If your brand wants to engage with influencers, find podcasters that are influencers, request to go on their podcast, right? So there's like a mini influencer marketing industry within podcasting that podcasters know about, but most brands don't. But I think they're going to open their eyes up to it in the near future. Neil, what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the social media space, what would they be? Well, you know, I never think of things as a revolution. It's all an evolution. Obviously, I think we need to further sort of segment the demographics. I think with, you know, TikTok taking over time from a Snapchat or an Instagram, there's always going to be an entertainment aspect of social media that is going to be driven by young demographics. You know, Snapchat tried to tap into that. They're still trying to tap into that. TikTok just naturally was able to grab that. So I think that concept of entertainment is going to be part of it going forward for that young demographic. So if you're a Sour Patch Kids or you're really trying to tap into that, you obviously need to be, and you should already be all over it. But now with, uh, with the emergence of TikTok, obviously entertainment in a lot of different forms, I think you need to be even more creative. And I think the value of influencers actually goes up even more when we get to those platforms. So, you know, that's sort of that, that one demographic. Um, the second one is, you know, when we talk more about like the millennial demographic, I do believe that, you know, UGC, looking at influencers at content creators, opening up your, your studio to content creators, influencers shouldn't have to go to YouTube uh, studios to, to create their content. If you have a video studio or a photo studio, you should create one and really develop those long-term content creation-centric relationships with influencers, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I'd say the third thing, like I said, th these are all sort of evolutions. I think we're going to see a lot more influencer-driven products. You know, we already see in China where on Taobao, which is like the Amazon in China, five of the top 10 fashion brands were launched by influencers. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. It's very, very easy for influencers to create products. And I think a lot of smart entrepreneurs are going to team up with influencers to help them launch those products and really monetize their communities going forward. So these aren't like brave. I don't like to predict the future. I'm much more of the here and now 
type of person. Like, don't worry about what's happening a year from now. There's so much to do today. But those are the three trends that I definitely see permeating. Uh, and obviously, the fourth one is influencer marketing really becomes a line item budget on, on the marketing budget of mainstream America or mainstream business. And we're still probably a few years out from that, but I definitely think we're moving in that direction. What are some of the things that you're experimenting with today from a social standpoint? Podcast in some ways continues to be an experiment. And I have, I, you know, launching my book, I am sort of challenging myself to get on 100 podcasts in the next 90 days. So <laughs> that's, been, uh, that's, that's been sort of fun. I am more of a blogger than a YouTuber or an Instagrammer. So of really creating evergreen content, it's not necessarily about always creating new posts, but really revising old posts. So I have been challenging myself to create processes and experiment with having actually fewer content, but really create better content to get more digital influence with search engines. The third experiment I'm doing is sort of related to that, which is really using the same outreach tools that you know we use for our clients, less so on the Instagram and YouTube side, and more like I said, on the podcasting, LinkedIn, and mm. blogging side. So I'm really focused on those. The video experiment that I plan to launch later this month is really using video instead of using images for uh, blog content of starting to translate those into videos and videos of me speaking and really introducing the topic and placing those at the top of blog posts, but also using that content to share in social media to take advantage of the fact that algorithms favor video over anything else. So those have been my major, you know, experiments when it comes to social in general, very much, you know, blogging focused with a little bit of podcasts little bit of video. Obviously, once I go there, I want to relaunch my own YouTube channel. I do have a YouTube channel. haven't been that active, but um, I've seen, you know, people just blow up even in my space, even in B2B spaces. And I want to, I want to be there as well. So that's sort of the, the next phase is going to be uh, moving more into there. But until I get there, I just want to, you know, shore up my own blogging and then podcast infrastructure, and then I'll move over to YouTube. Very cool. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Neil, if you were starting a business in the social media space today, what would you do? I have two ideas, and these actually come from when I talk on influencer marketing, the questions I get. It's like, you know what? Someone should develop this tool or this service. So there is a company in Australia, and I'm forgetting their name, but they basically have, and I know with coronavirus, this is going to be difficult to do right now, but obviously when we're in the clear, they basically have events where they bring together influencers. And they'll bring 200, 300 influencers, you know, mommy bloggers, Instagrammers, YouTubers into a room. And they'll have brands basically put up booths, sponsors, to engage with influencers. That's the business model, it is these events and the sponsorship revenue. Let the brands and influencers meet each other and develop relationships. And I think that's a really, really great idea in big cities like New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago. You know, they can be done virtually now. But I, I think that that is an idea where even for small businesses that, you know, how do I find influencers? Well, bring a marketplace to them of people that they could spend the day with to get to know, right? So that's something I haven't seen replicated outside of, I think it's called Kids Business Communication. It really focuses on mommy bloggers, but I, I thought that was a great idea. And I think that similar sort of influencer brand meetups is a thing, you know, whether it's, it's industry specific or like mommy blogger or, you know, video, whatever. I think that's a very, very interesting concept that could be very, very profitable. The other one is on the technology side, that's more the person side, the technology side, I think that. There's a lot of tools out there. There's influencer marketing places. We've seen this growth of influencer discovery tools. What we don't have enough are, are just tracking tools, right? 
It's like, you know, take my CRM, here are the campaigns, here's how we want to measure it. I don't want to use your tool to find influencers. I already know who they are. I'm already working with them, but I need a tool to help like track and report. So I've seen one or two of these tools, but I think that as more companies take their influencer marketing in-house, obviously there's still a need for those discovery tools and search tools, but I think that there's a greater need for these types of, you know, measuring and tracking tools. And I, I, I do think that, you know, if I understood the technology now, I would try to build something of that sort. And, and I think that there's a great need for that. There's only one tool that I know of that does this. And I bring this up because I said, you know, these ideal programs going forward are going to be looking at people that already have brand affinity, right? So instead of reaching out to someone that may have never heard of your brand, tap into your CRM of, of, of your, your customers, tap into your email list and tap into your Instagram followers. There's actually a tool that's only available on Shopify right now called Caro, C-A-R-O, right? I think it's getcaro.com that actually does this within Shopify. It integrates with like active campaign and email marketing, integrates with Instagram, grabs your followers. And obviously because it's in Shopify, it grabs your Shopify shopping cart history. It brings all this together in a dashboard, in the app, inside Shopify, and then lists out who are the influencers that already are brand affinity for you. And it has a CRM capability to, to communicate with them in the app. And I think that is brilliant. I think the big social media dashboards, what have you, are going to go after this. But if I was to create an app today to help businesses with influencer marketing, that would be the app. You're speaking my language. Uh, you know, I used to work at an influencer network helping these digital talent grow their careers and work with brands. And at the time, five, six years ago, nothing existed. Everything from, like you said, influencer discovery, talent CRM, managed campaigns, track and report on that activity to advertisers. And so that's why my partners and I teamed up and launched Paladin. And, and we've been building tools specifically really for influencer agencies, talent managers, influencer networks, everyone on the kind of the supply side of the of the value chain mm -hmm. to help them go out and pitch their talent to advertisers. We, we tap into all the platform APIs and provide real-time reporting on everything from Instagram stories to Twitch live streams, YouTube videos, tweets, Facebook posts, and more. So you're right. I mean, we're, we're betting big on the future of good reporting tools for influencer marketing. Oh, without a doubt, because the ROI is all in the reports, right? If you're an agency, that report has the most value. Obviously, you know, everything you do has value, but at the end of the day, your customer is going to show the report to their CMO, their CEO, what have you, and try to get you more budget. So that reporting has to be solid. Obviously, it has to be positive, uh, but you need the tools. And I think that the reports are going to get more and more savvy. And it's great to hear that, you know, James, companies like yours are really investing in it because there's a huge need for that right now. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you and more about your work? Sure. So, you know, my new book, it really is the influencer marketing playbook. So, and, and I, I really wrote it to educate, but also to hopefully generate more demand because I do think that the future is very bright for the industry. So if you're looking for a book to read or to, you know, convince your clients or to have your clients try to get more budget for influencer marketing, that would be the book I, I wrote. So it's called The Age of Influence. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I also have my own podcast that we talked about, uh, Maximize Your Social Influence. I look at influence a little bit more holistically for small business owners, entrepreneurs, and marketers. And I also am Neil Schaefer, N-E-A-L-S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R, on social media uh, and neilschaefer.com. I'd love to hear from you. Well, Neil, this has been so much fun. Thanks for taking the time to share your experience diving deep into social as an author, a speaker, international consultant, podcaster. It's great to hear about all the dimensions and the evolution of the social space and, and how influencer has, has intersected and become a big part of that over the last decade. James, it's always fun to talk to leaders in the industry like yourself and Paladin, so it's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. 
See you next time.